Did you know that there are over 65 million Gen Xers, yet so few financial advisors focus on Gen X? Why? It's because you aren't rich. Yet. Welcome to the Gen X Money Advisor with Michael Labus, certified financial planner, certified college funding specialist, and founder of Gen X Wealth Partners. This podcast focuses on the specific needs of Gen Xers by a Gen Xer. Get ready to explore topics that will help you get your retirement on track, maximize your dollar towards your child's education, and successfully manage aging parents. We will even sprinkle in a little health and wellness, travel and leisure, and time and stress management. Come and experience the expertise of Michael and his special guests who focus on enhancing the quality of your life today and in the future. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Gen X Money Advisor. My name is Michael Labus, your host, and today I'm very excited to have our guest, Anne Garcia, fellow certified financial planner and also author of the book, How to Pay for College. And welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you for having me. And today we are going to discuss some of the best practices uh, for college planning sort of the do's and don'ts, if you will. I'm sure we're gonna have a great call today and Anne's gonna bring a wealth of knowledge to us. So why don't we go ahead and dive in. And the first topic I'd like to talk about really is just why are we even having this discussion? The, the problem that's associated with college planning, which is obviously it's expensive, but you know today hopefully we're gonna give you some insight as to how we can navigate that and get a better deal for our kids. Uh, and what do you think the biggest problem about college planning is today? I, I think one of the biggest problems is that, um, is that families don't understand what college really costs. And there's just so much misinformation out there around costs, around saving strategies, around what benefits you and what doesn't benefit you. And you know, to the point where it's not so much that people are doing the wrong things, but people are paralyzed just by all of the, you know, all of the choices that are, that are out there. Totally. I totally agree with that. It's, there's so, there's so much information and also misinformation out there that's challenging. And sometimes parents just want to throw up the white flag and say, I give up or I quit, or it's just too hard. And they settle for a college or a school or scenario that's not really in their best interest, but Hey, at least it uh, got the job done. So yeah. let's start with one of the most important things that parents and kids can do is to, to, st to start this discussion early. And when we mean early, how about a newborn? <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, it's never too early to start planning for college. It's also never too late. So if you are the parent of a 12-year-old and are just getting started, you know, you haven't missed the boat by any stretch of the imagination. But given the really short time window from birth to high school graduation, what's the classic, the days are long and the years are short, especially, you know, even more so when you're talking about trying to save for a, um, for a pretty expensive goal. But, you know, if you're the parent of a newborn, you you can absolutely you know start a 529 the best and the best conversations to be having around college are between the parents um, so so getting both parents on the same page in terms of what your expectations are both 
going to college, you know, I'm 100% committed that my kids are going to college, or I don't care whether my kids go to college, or it's an opportunity I want to make available, whatever that is between the parent, you know, between the two parents. When kids are young, those are the kinds of conversations to be having, just getting yourselves on, on the same page, to have that you know, to have a, a consistent face towards your, um, towards your kid. And, you know, in parallel, getting the financial foundation in place to support whatever decision it is that, that you make. I think, you know, I think that one of the reasons we have this problem with almost $2 trillion in outstanding student loan debt is, is that saying, you know, save for retirement, not for college, because you can take out loans for college, not for retirement. If you don't want your kid to be one of those um, people who graduates from college and has no choice but to move home and live in the family basement, you know, when your child is a newborn, that's a terrific time to set up a 529 and start saving for college. Even if it's only small amounts, being disciplined and intentional in your savings will over time yield, yield good results. So I think for parents of newborns, those are the two really important tasks, you know, get some savings set up and get the parents on the same page as far as, you know, what they, what their expectations are with college. I totally agree with that, especially with getting started as early as possible, because you think about it, retirement planning, if you get started in your early forties, okay, maybe you can get on track, but if that's really the equivalent to being a newborn, like you're in your early forties already, considering you have 18 years, so you're about to retire, go to school. So it's super important to start early. And the, the point of starting early is to just give yourself more options and it makes it easier. Also, uh, to Anne's point, getting on track as, as parents, right? I, I see a lot of times one parent dominates the household's finances and the other parents kind of just like goes along with the flow, but maybe they have a totally different opinion on college. So getting on the same page is super important. Speaking of funding college, let's talk about your funding options for college. And the biggest one that most people know of is the 529 account, but there are also some other options. But, and I'd like to have you talk about the 529 account, the pros and cons and why it is really, you know, the best option for you. Yeah, I think for the vast majority of families, a 529 is your best choice for, for college savings. You know, there's a, a few benefits to 529s. One is many states give you a tax break for your contribution, so that can save you some additional money. And then the growth in the account is tax-free and the distributions are tax-free as long as they're used for qualified higher education expenses. And those are tuition, fees, books, room and board, um, required supplies. So most of your college expenses are what's called qualified expenses for purposes of using a 529. One of the big secrets about 529s is that they are, they're very, very beneficial in the financial aid formulas. So they're treated as a parent asset and the parent asset of the, of the four components of the, of the, um, of the expected family contribution or student aid index that's calculated, which is your, what the, what the government or the college says is your ability to pay for college. There are four components to that, the parent's income, the parent's assets, the student's income, and the student's assets. Of those four, the parent's assets get the most favorable treatment. So 529 is considered a parent asset. And the 529 is the one college funding source that everyone 
can take money out of it without it create without it adding to the family's income. And the income, parent's income is the least favored piece of, of the puzzle. So when you take a distribution from your 529, that is not reported on your taxes as long as it's used for qualified higher education expenses. So it does not impact your income. Um, other things, you know, a taxable investment account, certainly more flexibility because it doesn't have to be used for college and any withdrawals are treated as long-term capital gains rather than ordinary income. But that income does flow through to your tax return and um, and get reported and can um, and can reduce your eligibility for financial aid. Likewise, Roth IRAs. A lot of people tell you a Roth IRA is a good um, savings tool. The problem with the Roth IRA is, on the one hand, it's beneficial because you don't report it as an asset. But when you take the money out, even though it's a tax-free distribution, that still is added to your income, um, which means you can't take that money out during an, an income year that matters for the FAFSA or the CSS profile without impacting your eligibility for financial aid. Real quick question here, Ann. A question that I get a lot of, and maybe you can answer this for our listeners here today is, okay, so I've got a 529 account and at the end of college, there's a balance that's left over. How is that treated in terms of distributions and what can you, what can you do with that asset? Yeah, so it's a great question, and it is definitely one that comes up a lot and something that parents are um, tend to be nervous about when setting up a 529. And as much as the question comes up, the actual topic in real life comes up pretty infrequently. But let's go there, because actually one of... Excuse me. One of the reasons why people end up with an overfunded 529 is that their student got more scholarships than they expected, um, which is a great problem to have. So if you take a non-qualified distribution from your 529, which is a distribution that doesn't go to pay for tuition fees, room and board, (laughs) books, et cetera, et cetera, um, you pay taxes on the gain in the account as well as a 10% penalty on the gain in the account. If the reason that you're taking that excess distribution out is that your student got scholarships, that 10% penalty is waived. So it's just the tax on on the growth. Um, Slightly less advantageous than capital gains taxes because they're taxed at income rates, not capital gains rates. But the advantage with the 529 is the distribution is taxable to whoever receives it and either the parent or the student can receive it. So what we typically do with a family who knows at the start of college that they have an overfunded 529 is we'll take excess distributions out in the student's name every year because they're typically in the 0% tax bracket while while they're a student. So you can manage those distributions really effectively if all you want to do is get the money out of out of the account. There are lots of other options too. You could change the beneficiary to another child. So let's say child number one gets a full tuition scholarship. Child number two chooses an expensive private school. Child number one's 529 can be, you can change the beneficiary on child number one's 529 to be, um, to be the other child and then use the funds to pay for that child's education. You can also use them for graduate school. You can use 529s for really a lot of things. You know, if your student is in high school and taking a dual credit course where they need to 
pay a fee to the college that grants the, the credit for it, you can use your 529 for that. There are a lot of gap year programs that you can use 529s for. I heard a story of a parent who took the excess in the 529, renamed themselves as the beneficiary and found a college that had a PGA tour golf program. And so they used their child's 529 surplus <laughs> to take golf lessons. Um, but, you know, I had another client whose child ended up not going to college at all. He needed a car to start his job and took a distribution from his 529. It was a non-qualified distribution. He was just getting started out. He was in a really low tax bracket and he was frankly thrilled to have a few thousand dollars to put towards his car. Did you, uh, did you hear that everybody? So it's not, it's a good problem to have lots of options, even if you have that problem and you might get some golf lessons out of this all in all, not, not as bad as we think it is. Another big topic here is establishing a college budget, right? How, how much can my family afford without having to take on unnecessary debt? And this is a big one because there's so, so much opportunity to kind of set expectations and, and have some parameters, which can offer a lot of actual benefits. So, Anne, can you talk to me a little bit about how you help clients establish a college budget and why it's so important? Yeah, I, you know, <clears throat> I think one of the really important things to remember about college planning is so much of the college narrative is driven by the Ivy Leagues and the Stanfords of the world, where they say you would be fortunate to have the opportunity to come here and here's what it costs and be prepared for that. Most colleges don't operate that way. Most colleges are actively trying to recruit and enroll students. And the way that they do that is by discounting their tuition, offering scholarships, um, offering different types of financial aid. The reason I say this is there's a scholarship out there for every student. And there is a college out there that meets every family's budget. If you're willing to go and, you know, and do the look to, to do the work to, to find that. So, so it's really, really important to understand what your budget is so that your student can be looking for colleges that, that meet your, your budget. A, a good way to come up with your budget is take your savings, divide it by four, assuming you're going to spend it down equally every year, figure out how much you can pay out of pocket every year, figure out how much your student can contribute out of pocket every year. If you're eligible for the American Opportunity Tax Credit, add $2,500 to your budget. If you're okay with your student taking out loans, add the direct student loan amount every year to your, to your budget. The loan amount is slightly different every year. It's $5,500 the first year, $7,500 the last two years, but it averages out to about $6,500 a year. So if you're okay with your student borrowing, you know, add that to your budget. It's a really helpful exercise to not wait until senior year <laughs> to look at what your college budget is, but instead to start looking at what you're doing savings wise and accumulation wise, say even in middle school at the very latest at the start of high school to see what, you know, what kind of budget you're on track for, identify opportunities to maybe increase your savings rate, um, whether that's bumping up your monthly contribution into your 529, whether it's using your 529's gifting page to encourage friends and family who give gifts to your children to instead contribute to their 529, whether it's 
you know, doing something like the you promise credit card that uh, that gives cash back into your into your 529, which I always thought was a total gimmick. And then somebody came into me with fifteen thousand dollars in their 529 from their you promise card. So so, you know, that certainly, um, you know, certainly is a way to um, to build up to build up assets, but get a really clear sense of what your family's budget is so that you can help your student to understand that and to identify colleges that fit within within that um, that range. And getting back to our original topic about conversations to be having, it's really, really important for parents to be talking with their kids about college finances when they're in when they're in high school. And I know for a lot of parents, like talking about money with their kids is at least as awkward as talking about sex with their kids. But that doesn't mean that you don't do it because the long-term ramifications of making bad financial decisions around college are a lot like the long-term ramifications of, you know, having a, having a baby when you're in high school. Um, you know, they can, they can completely throw your adult life onto a different track than you, than you thought you might be, be heading towards. I think that as parents, it's really important that those conversations be goal-oriented as opposed to constraint-oriented. So an example of a goal-oriented conversation is son or daughter or whoever you're talking to, we have saved enough and can pay enough that we can get you through our in-state public school with no debt. And it's really important to us that you graduate from college with no debt. You can probably find some other colleges that will work in that same budget and we're happy to support you in looking for those and applying to those and it's really important to us that you graduate with no or very minimal student student loan debt and we're going to help you do that versus don't apply to private schools don't apply out of state because we can only afford to send you to our in-state schools all right Anne. so i i read your book here uh, how to pay for college, and you do talk about your kids. So I'd love to hear about how you built your own plan and how your planning helped them to attend some really good schools. Yeah, I love talking about my kids. <laughs> <laughs> you know, writing a book about your kids' college experiences is a, is a amazing platform to brag about your kids endlessly. So I highly recommend that experience. Um, all kidding aside, um, when I got started as a financial advisor, I realized I was talking a lot to two groups of people. One was parents who had no idea how they were going to pay for college. And another was young adults who had graduated from college with a lot of student loan debt and didn't know how they were going to ever start saving for retirement or saving to buy a home or or any of those other things. And I realized I kind of fell in that first category of parents who didn't know how, didn't know exactly how we were gonna um, pay for college. And so I realized if I could, you know, if I could tackle this topic, I could help a lot of that first group, help to not create any more of that second group and help my family in, in the process because education is something that was really important to, um, to my husband and me and that we wanted to make available to, to our kids. I think one of the best things that we did was that we started to save early. You know, the earlier you save, the more work your money does. The later you save, the more work you do to come up with the same amount of money, you know, thanks to the power of compounding. So, so you know, when our kids were born, actually, I think even when I was pregnant with our kids, we set up 529 accounts and started um, and started saving. You can set up a 529 before your child is born. You just need to name one of the parents as the beneficiary, and then you change it over after the, after the child is born. 
Um, so, so we always made a point of, of saving for college. It wasn't always, you know, great amounts. You know, our kids were born in 2001, in March of 2001, right before the stock market collapsed. And my husband and I were both working in technology and both were out of work at that point. So, you know, so there's definitely been some fits and starts. It wasn't a strictly linear process. I will say the best thing about saving is savings gives you more choices. So we were very clear with our kids throughout the years that, um, that that, that they were not going to have unlimited choices for college, um, you know, that those choices were going to be driven in large part by, um, by what our budget was. And also, you know, we were really, we were really upfront with them. I was really upfront with them. You know, when I talked to people who had crazy amounts of student loan debt and, and, you know, I would share with them the impact it was having, you know, having on their lives. So I think that was something that my kids have always sort of had in the back of their heads from the point at which they were, you know, able to, you know, able to think about money. They were, you know, they were aware that student loan debt was something that they wanted to, to avoid. Now, my kids are very, very different students. My daughter, I would call her a D1 mathlete. My son is a very normal, normal kid. He went to school. Yes, but he played sports. He did hung out with his friends, had a job, had a girlfriend. School was never really the top priority for, for him the way it was for his twin sister. Um, so when the, you know, so when the time came to look to start looking for colleges, they were looking at really, really different, you know, really, really different types of colleges, um, just based on the fact of them being different people and different students. And frankly, we presented different sets of options to them. You know, on the one hand, our daughter had really made significant commitments to high school and, you know, doing full IB course load, participating in tons of extracurriculars, um, really going the extra mile academically at at every opportunity. Our son pretty much coasted through high school (laughs) to the best of his his ability. We also felt that she was much better suited to a private school environment, to that small, you know, to smaller classrooms, to, you know, better connections with, um, with faculty, to smaller social environments and whatnot. He, on the other hand, wanted to be in a big college environment. He literally picked his college because we were visiting Tucson, Arizona in the fall of one year of his high school, took a wrong turn and ended up on frat row on game day. And he was like, oh, this actually looks like a lot of fun. (laughs) Where everything you'd heard previously about college was, you know, academics and work hard in high school and so on and so forth. Fast forward and, you know, the time came to start looking for colleges. And my daughter was, like I said, really interested in private schools. That was a good fit for her. So we were very disciplined about um, doing that price calculators for all the colleges that she was interested in. So we had a good sense of what they were likely to cost. Now, for those of you who aren't aware of net price calculators, every college is required to have a tool on its website called a net price calculator. With a net price calculator, you punch in all of your financial data and they will tell you what students like you got for financial aid in the previous school year. they're not 100% accurate, in particular for families whose income varies a lot from year to year, but we found that every college she was accepted to her financial aid offer was within $2,000 of what the net price calculator said. So this is much more important than what the FAFSA tells you your expected family contribution is because colleges are under no obligation to meet your financial need. 
So we did the net price calculators for all the colleges that she was interested in. Fascinatingly, the prices that we got ranged from $11,000 a year to $82,000 a year all based on the same set of data. So again, there is a college that fits every family's budget. There are lots that don't. Um, and, and so we were able to pretty easily and quickly eliminate a lot of the colleges that she was interested in just on the basis that it didn't matter if she got in, she wasn't gonna go there because we weren't gonna pay $80,000 a year for, for college. Um, ultimately, she ended up choosing the University of Chicago. This is ironic because people say to me, wait, you're the college financial lady and your daughter goes to the most expensive college in the world. And, and that's true. It's also true that the University, of Chicago, the University of Chicago was her second cheapest choice because of their extremely generous financial aid policies. Um, my son, on the other hand, was very committed to getting out of Dodge, not going to the University of Oregon with all of his high school friends, but you know, doing something different. He um, did not have a terrific GPA. Um, he took the ACT and knocked it out of the park and found out that there was a scholarship at the University of Arizona that would let him go there for the same price as going to the University of Oregon. And so that is the school that we discovered with our wrong turn into Greek row. <laughs> um, and well, things you know, happen for a reason, right, Anne? Things happen for a reason, exactly. And what's great is they have both been extremely successful in college. And, and, you know, and ironically, sort of, you know, because we keep hearing that, you know, you have to go to these colleges to have a good future. Both of them, they're seniors now, they will graduate in the spring, and they have almost identical job offers. Um, you know, noting that they have different majors. Um, my son's a finance major, my daughter's a computer science major, but they have almost identical job offers despite, you know, one of them being at a top 10 university and the other one being at a large, not particularly exclusive um, public school. So if anyone tells you that you have to go to an Ivy League to get a good job, that is simply not true. Um, I think you know, one of the things I'm really thankful for is that my son was able to find an academic environment where he feels successful, he feels supported, he's been encouraged to spread his wings. And, and, and I'm not sure that he would have done those things had, you know, had he stayed in state, had we just said, nope, you're going to Oregon, because, you know, that's, that's your college budget. So, Anne, um, we talked about so far things that you should do. Now, I want to shift focus here. And let's talk for a little bit about things you shouldn't do. And one of the things that you alluded to was your daughter having gone through the process, she uncovered schools that range from 11,000 to 82,000. That's it's quite a spectrum there. Mm -hmm. And you came to the decision that I'm just not going to pay for these other schools. So uh, I think one of the biggest things that parents shouldn't do is spend more than, than they can afford. And can you talk about why that's so and how it can actually have long-term effects on both the parents and child? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having your college budget lets you know and make informed decisions about how you're going to, how you're going to pursue education. When you have a budget shortfall, the way you make that up is through borrowing. Um, and one of the biggest groups and most, most rapidly growing groups of borrowers out there is parents who've taken out Parent PLUS loans to pay for their kids' education. So borrowers over 50 are among, are, are the group of borrowers that is, that is growing the fastest. And so if you're over 50 and you're paying student loans and 
you know, you might be paying them for 20, 25 years, 30 years, because they're on the extended payment term, that is carrying over into your retirement years. And that is generally not too great of a choice. Most people, when they retire, want to spend their money on fun and travel and doing all the things they weren't able to do in their working years, not spend it on paying off, um, paying off student loans. Um, again, college comes in all shapes and sizes, all different prices. As we say, it's a lot like air travel. When you're on a, uh, you know, when you're on a trip, you don't want to ask the person sitting in the seat on the plane next to you how much they paid for their ticket. Um, college is, you know, college is the same way. Every student's paying a different price and, and, and you can certainly find options out there that will, um, that will fit your budget. You know, students, there's a limit to how much they can borrow through the federal student loan programs. And, you know, much as I probably have sounded like student loans are a one-way ticket to the poorhouse, the direct student loan is actually a reasonable amount for a student to borrow. If that's the difference between going to a college that's a great fit where they're going to get out in four years with a degree that will help them get established in the workforce and going to a place where they might not be successful, where there maybe isn't the support structure that, um, that they need to be successful. Choosing a school that requires them to take out the direct student loan for the family to afford it is, is, is a reasonable choice in, in many cases. And frankly, for a lot of families' budgets, that's the only way to, um, to get through a four-year college process. So, so, you know, for students to take out the direct student loan, that is an okay outcome. They'll pay, if they max out those loans um, every year for four years, they'll pay about $325 a month for 10 years to have it paid off. The college wage premium more than makes up for, um, for that. The problem is if the student needs to borrow any more than that, um, the direct student loan is the only loan that they can take out without a parent co-signer. Any private loan that they take out, parents are going to need to co-sign, and that means that the parents are equally responsible for those loans. Um, parent plus loans, the parents are fully responsible for, for those loans. So, you know, for, for, for parents who might be in their 50s when their kids graduate from college, that's just not a time in your life where you want to be carrying, um, you know, carrying a whole, a whole bunch of debt. Um, because your time horizon to pay it off is not there. And, and for most families, that's a time when you need to be focused on your own retirement savings and, um, and you know, getting your own financial house in order, not making up for overspending on, on, your, kids, on your kids' college. So you, you talked about an analogy there with paying for college and then you know, buying an airline ticket and you're not asking the guy next to you, hey, how much did you pay for this ticket? Because the price is going to be totally different. So one of the things that uh, I joke about with, with parents is, you know, would you go to a car dealership and see what MSRP is and that's what you pay? Nobody's going to buy a car at, at the MSRP. People are going to haggle, they're going to negotiate, they're going to walk away, they're going to come back. So I think one of the biggest things that uh, you shouldn't do is pay full sticker price for college. And there's actually an appeals or negotiation process that you can utilize to, to get a better deal. So could you kind of you know, talk about that for a minute. Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, every college is required to accept financial aid appeals from from parents, and that is a that's you going back to the or your student ideally going back to the college and saying we need more money. Um, you know, we can't attend um, at, at this cost. Um, I will say, the last couple of years, one hundred percent of my clients who have appealed their financial aid awards have gotten more money from from the colleges that's not me that's the system they're expecting you to come back asking um asking for for more you know the the important thing 
when you go into a financial aid appeal is understanding what type of financial aid award you had. So, so there are merit awards and there are awards that are on the basis of financial need. If you're appealing an award that's on the basis of need, you need to present new information showing why you have more need than the college may have, may have calculated, which, you know, that could be medical expenses, that could be, you know, changes in salary. Colleges are expecting this because the income that they're using is two years old by the time they calculate um, your financial aid award just based on, on how the FAFSA works. You know, this year, your 529 is worth a whole lot less than it was a year ago, just based on, you know, on what markets have done. So don't be afraid to reach back out to the colleges to ask for more. I think the other thing that's really important to do when you get your, when you get your um, acceptance awards is look through all the pieces of them and find out what's optional and what's not. So for example, with my daughter's college, they include health insurance in the cost of college. If you have existing health insurance, you can waive theirs and that saves you $5,000 a year off right off of the top. Um, with my son's college, so when he he applied to University of Arizona and University of Oregon, when he got his acceptances from both, it looked like the University of Arizona was $7,000 a year more than the University of Oregon. And we told him, you know, we're not paying an extra $28,000 so you can have better weather. That seemed like a reasonable position for us to take as, as like financially responsible parents. <laughs> you could do some really nice spring break stuff for $7,000 a year. And he was really, you know, he really, really, really wanted to go to Arizona. And so we said, you figure out how you're going to, how you're going to fill that gap. And, and he did. First thing he learned was that Arizona had quoted their highest cost housing and meal plan in his award letter and Oregon had quoted their lowest cost one. And so if he looked at where he was actually going to live, that changed it by about $4,000. And we had seen the dorm rooms at Oregon that were in his award letter. And we were like, yeah, that's not where you're going to live. Literally walk outside to change your mind. They're so small. I mean, you could, you could walk between the two beds. That was, and that was the extent of it. Um, he also um, learned that Arizona guaranteed tuition rates for four years. There's no tuition inflation once you're accepted, whereas at Oregon, tuition's gone up by about 5% every every year. So, so his tuition was actually going to be lower at Arizona for his second two years than it was, than it was going to be at, um, at Oregon. He's also gone out. He um, he joined an esports team, which is video games, and he now has a scholarship for playing video games. That's amazing. So, <laughs> so there, you know, there definitely there are lots and lots of ways. You know, don't take your aid award at face value. You know, do your homework, do your appeal. I mean, that's such a powerful point because, you know, as you just talked about, through the understanding of your financial aid awards and the ability to appeal for more help if necessary or warranted. That's also going to, I think, uncover some schools that might not have originally been on your radar. I mean, you might have had a, you know, talk about University of Chicago, you might have had a preconceived notion that's, that's out of my budget. I'm not even going to look at it, right? Just looking at the MSRP, like, no way. So I think one of the other pitfalls of planning is just looking at name brand schools and not even considering other schools that you may or may think are out of your budget. So can you talk about some experiences you've had with clients that have maybe found a school that wasn't initially on their uh, radar? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, University of Chicago was not on our radar. My, um, my daughter had some friends who had gone to Northwestern and she wanted to go see Northwestern. And, um, and I said, we're not going all the way to Chicago to visit one school. And, and she's like, but that's the only school I know. What else? (laughs) So I was like, well, I've heard of you, Chicago, let's go there. And, you know, we did the net price calculators for both. I was like, surprisingly, this one looks like it, you know, you Chicago looks like it would be cheaper than Northwestern if you, um, if you got into both. And, and we went, we did a big, you know, we did a big college tour and, you know, kind of same thing. She had a couple places in mind in each of the cities where she wanted to go. And I was like, that's not enough to justify going there. Let's add some more schools to the pile. And, you know, it was just places we'd heard about from friends and family, um, places that we knew other kids from our high school had gone. And, you know, and we, and we built up a, you know, we built up a big list of schools, you know, ironically, when we went to Chicago and visited Northwestern and then visited U Chicago, we had a nightmare of a trip down to from from Northwestern to U Chicago. We got there. I had you know literally smoke coming out of my ears. You know, our Uber got lost. We got rained on. <laughs> there was construction all over the campus, so we couldn't find where we were going. And we sat down in the room where they were going to do the presentation. And before the guy even said a word, Gabby turned to me and she said, "This is the place for me." And I was like, "You've got to be kidding! I'm never coming back here." <laughs> Sometimes you just know. Yeah. And, you know, and fortunately, like I said, it was her second cheapest choice. Um, she had a full tuition scholarship at the University of Oregon. So that was her cheapest um, choice. And again, fortunately, we had saved so that we were able to, you know, to support her in, in that in that choice. Um, but yeah, there. if you're willing to look around a little bit more, because again, so much of the college narrative is driven by the Ivy Leagues and the Stanfords of the world that that if you don't have um, financial need, you're going to pay full sticker price. But that's not to say that there aren't great, great values out there. Part of the reason that college costs so much is that many, many people are willing to pay full price, um, but not enough to fill a college class. And so every college offers some form of scholarship. Some offer scholarships on the basis of need. Some offer scholarships on the basis of merit. Some do both. It's up to you to find the schools that want to attract kids like yours. Now, most colleges, other than the Ivy Leagues and a few others, are trying very hard to move up in the US News and World Report college rankings. And one of the ways that they do that is by attracting students with higher GPAs and test scores than they have historically attracted. So if you are in the 75th percentile or above academically, at a college that offers merit scholarships, you are a candidate for merit scholarships at that college. If you're in the 75th percentile or above at the Ivy Leagues, you can expect to pay full price unless you have financial need because the Ivy Leagues turn away thousands, tens of thousands of 4.4 GPA, you know, 1560 SAT students every year. <laughs> wow. So there are so many other topics that I would love to talk to with you about today, Anne, but I want to ask you one more question here about things that you shouldn't do, and that is to forget to fill out the FAFSA. Can you explain the detriments of not doing so? Yeah, I think so many families say, well, we're not poor. We're not going to get financial aid. We shouldn't fill out the FAFSA, and um, everyone should fill it out. Everyone, it's, you know, first and foremost, it's not as hard as your uncle told you it is. (laughs) (laughs) It's gotten a lot easier because a lot of the data is um, transferred electronically from um, from the IRS. Um, In addition to being the application for need-based financial aid, 
from the college and from the federal government. The FAFSA is the application for direct student loans and for Parent PLUS loans. It's the application for work study. In many cases, merit awards still require you to submit the FAFSA because they might have a combination of a need component to it. So you won't be considered for many scholarships if you haven't filed the FAFSA. I also think it's a good parenting tool. You know, for me as a parent, I had certain requirements of my kids to support them in their education. That was things like that they pursued a major that might get them a job when they graduated. It was, you know, based on one of their friend's older brothers who came home from uh, for winter break, his freshman year of college, talking about his friends who had tattoos that they regretted already. <laughs> I was like, no tattoos while you're in college. <laughs> um, had they transgressed against any of these things, I wouldn't have said, okay, that's done, not paying for your college, but I would say you're on the hook for the student loan every year that's going to be, you know, your contribution to your college. But again, with the direct student loan, college often costs a lot more than you think it's going to, um, whether it's that you've chosen an out-of-state school and the whole family wants to travel there a couple times a year um, and you're paying for airfare, whether it's that your child is pursuing a STEM major where they've got a lot of lab fees or book costs or to travel abroad, participating in the Greek system. There are lots of reasons why college costs more than you think it's going to. And if, you're, if your budget is already stretched, um, you do want to have access to the direct student loan in order to, to participate in, in, in the components of college that are, that are important to you. So, I mean, I, I listened here and I'm pretty pumped up about the process. Uh, I think if you listen to this, you should be pretty inspired about the opportunity out there and to take control of the process, right? So, you know, get started early, have a plan, have a budget, and most importantly, Anne, can you talk to us real quick here about how people can get a hold of you and how they can get a copy of your book, which is awesome, and so that they can, you know, continue this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. My website is howtopayforcollege.com. Um, and my book is How to Pay for College. It's available from Amazon and from independent bookstores um, everywhere. Just came out this year. And a lot of the things that I've talked about today, you know, building up your budget, having conversations with your kids, planning for the FAFSA, researching colleges are all covered in, in great detail in the book, along with um, downloadable worksheets that, that help you map all these, all these things out. Well, Anne, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I hope everybody learned a whole lot. And uh, I'll talk to you guys next episode. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Gen X Money Advisor podcast. Click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Gen X Wealth Partners. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding Regarding your individual situation. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, LLC, Kestra IS, member FNRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC, Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Gen X Wealth Partners is not affiliated with Kestra IS or Kestra AS. Views within the podcast are solely of Gen X Wealth Partners and are not necessarily the views of Kestra AS or Kestra IS.